The following is a CJBT Productions podcast. This is the Music History Today in-depth podcast for December 11th through the 17th. On this week's show, we discuss the mystery surrounding Sam Cooke's death, the strange and very scary case of Justin Bieber and Three Men, fake news that inspired a movie, a movie that inspired a song title, And we say happy birthday to three people, two of whom are legends, and one who's definitely making a case for becoming one. In the late 1950s through the early 1960s, Sam Cooke was the king of soul music. He actually started out singing gospel music like a lot of people who eventually sang soul music, starting in 1957 with the song You Send Me and going through 1964, Sam racked up hit after hit. What made Sam even more special was that he wrote all of his songs instead of relying on a songwriting team like, say, anyone at Motown. On the evening of December 11, 1964, Sam checked into the Hacienda Motel in Los Angeles, California. He did not leave the motel alive. According to the testimony of motel manager Bertha Franklin, Cook attempted to rape his companion, Alyssa Boyer, who he had taken to the motel that night. Once Boyer escaped the attempted rape, she ran to get the manager. Once Cook realized that Boyer had escaped, he ran down to the manager's office demanding to know where Boyer was hiding. Cook then attacked Franklin, who then shot him three times. Franklin was later acquitted on murder charges, and the case was ruled a justifiable homicide. There has been some doubt thrown at that story since then. Some people, for instance, believe that Boyer actually went to the motel willingly and actually robbed Cook, then fled which was why Cook was enraged. Boyer had been arrested for prostitution, so I guess it's not really out of the realm of possibility that she basically was there to rob him. Others think that Cook's manager orchestrated the killing since all copyrights to Cook's songs went to his manager's company. However, since both of those possibilities were outside the initial scope of the investigation, they were never pursued. 
What's interesting is that the nature of his death seems to have been forgotten while his legacy of being one of the most important voices in the history of soul music continues to this very day. I'm not sure that if that had been the case in today's toxic media and social media environment, after all, nobody thinks about O.J. Simpson and thinks great running back, one of the greatest of all times. And I doubt anybody will use the words Kevin Spacey and great actor again without adding some other choice words, which we're not going to repeat here. The murder of soul great Sam Cooke at the Hacienda Motel on December 11th, 1964. And now, the strange and scary story of Justin Bieber and the Three Men. Once upon a time, there was an inmate named Dana Martin. Dana was serving two life sentences for killing a 15-year-old girl in Vermont. Dana had a bit of a fixation on Justin Bieber. He even went so far as to get a tattoo of Bieber on his leg. Dana wrote to Bieber constantly, but became very angry when the Biebs would never write him back. And if you're thinking of Eminem's music video for the song Stan, uh, no, but close. Dana decided that something had to be done to teach Justin a lesson. He decided to hatch a plot and got his fellow inmate, Mark Aaron Saki, to help out. Since Martin wasn't going to be getting out of jail anytime soon, and Saki was, well, then Saki was going to carry out the plan. The plan was for Saki to tie up a couple of loose ends of Martin's in Vermont, literally. Sarkey was to kill two people in Vermont using a paisley tie, don't ask, then go to New York City where Bieber had a concert at Madison Square Garden. There, Sarkey was to kill Bieber and his bodyguard. In all killings, everyone was supposed to be castrated. In return, Sarkey was supposed to get two thousand five hundred dollars per testicle plus a Vermont farm. The castration part had Sarkey feeling just a little bit squeamish. I guess not the whole tying up and killing somebody in a paisley tie, but whatever. So Sarkey got his nephew, this would be man number three, Tanner Ruen, in on the deal. Once Sarkey was released from jail, he grabbed Ruin and off they went towards Vermont. The plan was going great. Okay, actually the driving towards Vermont was going great. Well, un- 
until they missed the exit that they were supposed to take and instead ended up at a checkpoint on the Canadian border. There, Border Patrol agents discovered a warrant for Sarkey on an outstanding probation violation and arrested him. They let his nephew Ruan go, though, and like all good lackeys, he went and called his boss Martin, where he was still in jail, where they record and listen to all of your conversations. Brilliant. A quick investigation happened, and on December 13, 2013, the entire plot unraveled and all involved were charged. About a year later, Martin gave an interview to Details Magazine. During the interview, he said that the reason why he did it was because he wanted to be remembered. Well, mission accomplished. He also claimed that he still had assassins out to get Bieber, but that he would call off the assassins if Bieber would meet with him face to face. Such is the scary cost of fame. And although these criminals were way too stupid for their own good, it just goes to show you sometimes what the price of celebrity is really is. The unraveling of the plot to kidnap, kill, and castrate Justin Bieber on December 13th, 2013. In 1976, music and movie producer Robert Stigwood was looking for his next big hit. He had come off of making two very successful movie musicals, Jesus Christ Superstar and The Who's Tommy. An article in New York Magazine caught his attention. It was titled, The Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night by Nick Cohen. The article told the story of a guy named Vinny and his buddies who were dancers at a discotheque in Brooklyn and who always dreamed of something bigger. Stigwood was hooked on the story and decided to turn the article into a movie. Vinny became Tony Monero. Stigwood got one of his old groups from his music producing days to do the music for the movie, then grabbed an up-and-coming actor from a TV show and released the movie. The movie, Saturday Night Fever, premiered in theaters on December 14, 1977, and became one of the biggest movies of the year. It turned the disco music genre into a global sensation, the soundtrack into one of the biggest selling movie soundtracks of all time, the music group on the soundtrack, the Bee Gees, into one of the biggest groups of all time, and the actor... John Travolta into an international star along with getting him an Academy Award nomination for playing Tony. 
Now, this story would be good right there, except that it's not the end of the story. In 1994, almost 18 years after the original magazine article came out, Nick Cohen fessed up. In an article in the Guardian newspaper, he admitted that he actually made up most of the article. See, Nick had just moved to New York City at that point in his life when he was hired to write the article, and he didn't know the neighborhood in Brooklyn well enough to know any of the guys there. The name of the discotheque, Odyssey 2000, was real, and Vinny and his friends were Italian, but that was all that there was that was real about the article. In fact, Vinny was based on a guy Nick knew from his old English neighborhood back in the 1960s. So you see, John Travolta and the Bee Gees and the disco genre owe their superstardom partially to fake news. And the article premiered in the June 7, 1976 issue of New York Magazine. Also, Bonus trivia, June 7th also plays heavily into something else concerning John Travolta. On June 7th, 1972, the Broadway musical Grease premiered. When it was turned into a movie, Robert Stigwood was the producer and grabbed the guy who he had made into a star, John Travolta, for the main role. The one-two punch of Saturday Night Fever and Grease, the movie, made John Travolta into the hottest actor in the world. So June 7th must be a pretty lucky day for Travolta. The premiere of one of the biggest music movies ever made, Saturday Night Fever, on December 14th, 1977. Our next story has a neat little twist to it. First, 1986 was a big year for Run DMC, who released their groundbreaking album, Raising Hell. The album was produced by Rick Rubin, who had a major role in one of the most important songs of all time. The album was almost done when they decided to do one more song to pique interest from their fans who liked the hard rock sounds of the album's King of Rock and Rock Box. After some discussion, they fell upon the idea of doing Walk This Way by Aerosmith. Originally, they were going to sample the song, but Rick and Jam Master Jay wanted to redo the entire song completely. They put out the call to Aerosmith to gauge interest. At first, there wasn't any. What has to be remembered is that in 1985, no one liked Aerosmith. Known as the Toxic Twins at that point, Aerosmith, Steven Tyler, and Joe Perry were looked at as part of a group whose heyday was in the 1970s and had a lot of drug, alcohol, and other internal band issues to go along with all that. They were, at that point, pretty much done as a band. Even with their careers in freefall, though, Stephen and Joe didn't want to do the song 
because, well, they hated hip-hop. To them and a lot of other artists, hip-hop was taking their songs, using them without paying the artists, and making money off of them. The Toxic Twins wanted no part of that. Rick convinced them to just come to the studio to work things out. But once they saw how Jam Master Jay would cut the record precisely where he wanted the beat to be at will on the turntables, they were fascinated and they then wanted in on the collaboration. The music video also became iconic. The video unfolds with both acts on other sides of the wall. Then, once Run DMC starts rapping loud to the beat on one side of the wall, Steven breaks through the other side of the wall with a mic stand. Then, as with all happy endings, everybody ends up on a concert stage together as a show of solidarity and breaking down the barriers between both the rock and hip-hop cultures. Rumor has it, though, that Steven couldn't break down the wall at first, but they left that part in the final cut of the video. The song, the album, and the music video all became huge, groundbreaking hits. It also gave Aerosmith their career back, as the band got back together and started putting out hit songs of their own, like Love in an Elevator, Dude Looks Like a Lady, Angel, among many others. Now, the twist in the story is why Aerosmith named the song Walk This Way in the first place. The story goes that some of the guys in Aerosmith took a break from recording their album, Toys in the Attic, to go see a movie, which premiered in movie theaters on December 15, 1974. In this movie, there's a scene where Igor, played by Marty Feldman, tells Dr. Frankenstein, that's Frankenstein, played by Gene Wilder, to walk this way. To which Frankenstein does, mimicking Igor's walk. The movie was Mel Brooks's classic comedy, Young Frankenstein. The guys in Aerosmith laughed so hard during the scene that when they got back to the studio to finish up the song they were working on, they decided to name the song after that particular scene, so they named it Walk This Way. And that is where the song title Walk This Way came from, and the movie that the song title is based on Young Frankenstein premiered on December 15th, 1974. This week, there are three birthdays to highlight. The first person is considered one of the greatest vocalists of all time. He sold over 150 million albums. 
He was a singer, an actor, and a producer. He's won Grammys, an Oscar, and a Golden Globe. He was in The Manchurian Candidate, The Man with the Golden Arm, From Here to Eternity, Ocean's Eleven, Robin and the Seven Hoods, Come Blow Your Horn, On the Town, Guys and Dolls, High Society, and Pal Joey. He was also the ringleader of the Rat Pack with Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin, among a few others. He is known as The Voice, the chairman of the board, and Old Blue Eyes. He is Frank Sinatra, born December 12th, 1915. This next person is one of the biggest selling artists of her generation. She's put out nine albums, four of which were country albums. She's been named one of Rolling Stone magazine's top 100 greatest songwriters of all time, even if a lot of those songs involved ex-boyfriends. Her fan base of Swifties rivals the Bayhive as far as their fierce devotion goes and probably the BTS army these days. Swifty, aka Taylor Swift, born December 13th, 1989. The last person is one of the most recognizable names in classical music. His Fifth Symphony is probably the most famous piece of classical music in the world. Towards the end of his career, he began to lose his hearing, yet continued to write music. In all, he wrote nine symphonies, 32 piano sonatas, 16 string quartets, five piano concertos, a violin concerto, and an opera. He is Ludwig von Beethoven, born December 17th, 1770. And that is it for the Music History Today in-depth podcast for December 11th through the 17th. For more music podcasts, check us out on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, CastBox, Spotify, TuneIn, Podbean, HubHopper, OnlyFans, and Patreon, all under Music History Today. You can find us on our website at www.cjbtproductions.com. Our email address is musichistorytoday at gmail.com. We are on Instagram and Twitter at CJBT Productions. Our Facebook page is Music History Today. Also, our SoundCloud is Music History Today. And you can find us on YouTube by searching Music History Today. This has been a CJBT Productions podcast. Thank you very, very much for listening.